Now that we've gone through the earliest newspaper articles on Doreen Vincent's disappearance in June of 1988, we're going to begin to walk through the different scenarios of what potentially happened to her. I had finished the last episode by reading a 2001 article from the Hartford Current about Haddon Clark. It described how Clark had claimed that at some time in the 1980s, he abducted a girl from a bowling alley in Wallingford and after killing her, buried her at the base of Castle Craig in Meriden. In the article, the Connecticut State Police, not Clark, mind you, made the connection that if that claim is true, then that girl could have been Doreen Vincent. Local police, on the other hand, said no, that claim has no basis. So when the team and I first started researching Doreen's case for season two, Haddon Clark was one of the first avenues we went down. Jessica Fritz Aguirre purchased a book about Clark called Born Evil, a true story of cannibalism and serial murder, written by Adrian Havel. After reading the book through and through, she organized the timeline of Clark's whereabouts during the time that Doreen disappeared. Jessica and I had a detailed conversation about Haddon Clark based off the information given in Havel's book, which is what I'll be sharing with you in this episode. We also, a few days prior, had taken a drive through the area in Wallingford that Doreen would have had to walk through to get to either of the bowling alleys which were there at the time. This is Season 2, Episode 3 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. When I read Adrian Havel's book, uh, Born Evil, A True Story of Cannibalism and Serial Murder, he says in 2001, you know, Haddon's rarely in his right mind now. And he committed the murders that we know about in 1986, I think, in 1987 or 89. Um, So he's rarely been in his right mind. But I think that's sort of his game, too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the murders that we know that he did commit. Okay. Um, the first one, it was Michelle Dorr was the first of, of the two that we know of, right? Right. Michelle Dorr and then Laura Hodling. So he was living in Maryland um, in 1986. He's with his brother, Jeff. And it's Memorial Day weekend of 1986. And his brother's kicking him out of the house because, um, you know, Haddon just did things that were unsavory. He's constantly getting kicked out of homes. He gets kicked out of his brother's home because he was masturbating in front of his nieces and nephews. So the family clears out to give Haddon time to get his stuff and go. Haddon's niece, uh, Jeff's daughter, earlier in the week had called him a retard. I think the statement was, my retard uncle has to pick me up from school, which really didn't sit well with Haddon because his father had called him a retard uh, most of the time he was growing up. Yeah. So Haddon decides he's going to take revenge on his niece, but he can't kill his niece because he'll get in trouble for it. So he's packing his things, and Michelle Dorr walks into the house. Now she's there visiting her father um, on visitation for Memorial Day weekend. And he lives next door. Yeah, I think it's two houses. Okay. Yeah, and um, when I saw it on Forensic Files, the way that the houses face the street, you know, they're fairly close together. There's a small front yard. It just looks like... 
it looks like Little Pink Houses by John Mellencamp. Like, it's yeah. very um, all-American, you know, 1986. Yeah. And, like, you've talked about multiple times, like, kids just did that. Yeah, and that wasn't even uncommon when I was little. Like, if you had a friend that lived next door or across the street, you could you could walk over, especially if it was, like, a summer day and, like, people yeah. were out walking around anyway. That's how it struck me is that, you know, she kind of, because the, the way that this story ends up being true when you put all the pieces together is that um, the doors, Carl and his wife, were having a very bad divorce. Um, and there was constant, you know, uh, custody disputes over Michelle and he had her for the weekend and by all you know accounts he just spent the weekend watching sports on television yeah. he was watching nascar he's watching baseball he's watching all sorts of stuff and she's supposed to be playing out in the pool outside he just sent her outside in the backyard but again in the 80s like that's what you do with your kid yeah. like we weren't really parented as much i guess as we could have been um and he loses track of her and he goes from door to door later, and he can't find her. And basically what happened is she walked into her friend's house. I think the little girl's name is Liza. Looking for Liza. And Haddon is there by himself, and he decides um, revenge is best executed by um, killing this little girl in the bedroom. Um, and then he dumped her body later. We should mention to people, too, we briefly mentioned forensic files, because they did do an episode <laughs> Uh, the episode title is called Dress to Kill. That's right. Um, and uh, they did find out later only when they decided to test the 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 hardwood in the floor. Um, they found traces in between the cracks of Michelle Dora's blood. Yeah. And so it, I think they go over in forensic files, right? The house had been renovated and the mm -hmm. floors refinished and varnished. And there was still enough blood still in the cracks to get um, to get Haddon Clark, which is amazing. And so uh, Sarah and I were able to interview a private investigator who shall go unnamed and mm -hmm. didn't want to be taped. Uh, but I guess she was the one who um, was writing Haddon letters in prison under the guise of being another inmate's girlfriend who got him to eventually confess that he'd done something to a little girl he should be punished for. Yeah. And that's why he's in jail for that murder. We were talking earlier how Haddon Clark doesn't really have an M.O. In Michelle Dore's case, you know, she's this six-year-old girl who kind of was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Like, she walked over to visit her friend, and this happened. Um, whereas Laura Hodling was older. She was a grown woman, mm -hmm. and Haddon actually planned that one out. He did. So Laura Hodling was 23 uh, when she died. She's a beauty queen and she was um, a Harvard graduate. And uh, Haddon Clark was doing gardening work for her mother while she was away at school and she was working. So um, her mother's name is Penny. She's a born again Christian and Haddon is doing, um, you know, work in her yard. And he becomes fixated on Penny and then on her daughter who doesn't live there, Laura. Um, and he starts dressing in Laura's clothes and wearing Laura's things um, and trying to be Laura as much as possible. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a constant theme that runs through his work. Yeah. But he uh, he waited until Penny, the mother, was gone one weekend when he knew Laura would be coming home. And he got into her bed, into Laura's bed, um, wearing, you know, a blonde wig and dressed as Laura 
And when she came into the bedroom, he said something like, call me Laura. Yeah. Or something like that. Um, and then strangled her to death. But he did have a whole, like, rape murder kit that he had compiled previously that when he wrote the check at the hardware store, he wrote Laura in the memo space because he knew what he was going to do. So now that we've talked about Haddon Clark's two known victims, we then delved into the timeline, going all the way back to where he was originally from. So he's from Troy, New York, um, which is up, you know, in the Rochester area. Um, I believe he was born in the late 50s. And he grew up in a fairly well-to-do family um, with a grandfather who was actually a Republican mayor from White Plains. Uh, very respected. Um, his mother, Flavia, grew up in Meriden, Connecticut, um, and was just, they're very well-to-do. She was sort of like a bell of the ball kind of figure. Yeah. Um, but he's moved around a lot uh, when he was young. He's got um, three siblings, Bradfield Haddon. I believe that the next one is Jeffrey Haddon. And then he's third, I want to say, but his name's just Haddon. There's no middle name it's just Haddon okay um and his father was also Haddon but he goes by Kristen Bluefin which is interesting <laughs> yeah that's his his female alter ego that he claims is is the killer that's the alter ego that commits the murders right yeah and that's what his father used to call him because they wanted a girl um but his father called him Kristen um like I said before he also called him a retard mm -hmm. um but Haddon had suffered at least two that I know of um serious head injuries when he was a child um and there's some you know brain damage uh concerns yeah like tbi affects behavior thing like things like that right yeah. right well i mean i think if you go back through like serial killer history yeah. there's a lot of head injuries going on yeah so it's true yeah. i mean it, it i think yeah, it's it just, documented yeah it knocks your personality yeah. sideways yeah. but i think that's the same thing that you were saying like you know, an organized murder like Laura versus a disorganized murder like Michelle, there's really no way um, to map it. So um, Haddon starts out doing pretty well. He goes to um, the Culinary University um, in New York, and he becomes famous for making sculptures out of ice, which I thought was cool yeah. and something I know about. Um, and then butter sculptures, which I think is, you know, a little bit more technical. And then um, is it tarot or tallow? meat but, tallow like he's oh. making sculptures from bone marrow basically oh, which is like know. kind of a strange I I've heard of okay. yeah i didn't that's why when i was reading um so but you know he's won awards for that um you know he's kind of regarded as a a gentleman he doesn't have very much of any sort of dating history um he doesn't have any friends and he becomes like a grifter who like i said before he was living with his brother he was a gardener for penny hodling and he's just making his way along from um you know maryland where his family um eventually settled to rhode island where his mother's got like a bed and breakfast and now we have the meriden connection that was where haddon clark's mother was originally from the next question i had for jessica was at what point in the timeline did clark make the claim of picking up a girl from a bowling alley in wallingford so this book by adrian havel is very good as far as chronology in some parts and then in other parts it just has a, a wide range so it says in the 70s he admitted that in the 70s he had killed a little girl 
um, I believe it was a little girl from Massachusetts. And then, but they were never able to find a body. And then he says later in the 80s, he claims that he took a little girl from a Wallingford bowling alley. Um, the year's not specified. The season isn't specified. Okay. Um, and I don't think he's ever mentioned Doreen's name or described her. Okay. And you were doing some research on where Haddon was, like a timeline of what locations he was in throughout time. And I know you were trying to figure out where he was in the summer of 1988. Mm -hmm. But there was some other things going on, too, um, like within the summer of 1988. <laughs> like at one point... Let's talk about how he uh, he trashed somebody's house. Well, let's get there slowly because okay. I feel like that needs to be built up towards like trashing someone's house is not. Ex I mean, when I it's read, a little more. It's a. I mean, I I'm kind of understating it a bit. When I read about it originally, I thought to myself, okay, so he got 30 years for Michelle Dore, he got 30 years for Laura Hodling, and he got 10 years for trashing this house, and I thought. Wow, that's a really <laughs> severe way to undersell a human life. You know, this house yeah. gets trashed and it's worth a third of the time of this woman's life. But um, what he did in the summer of 1988 was um, he got kicked out um, because he was living in this family's basement. And I believe, again, he was masturbating in yeah. front of their kids. And let's specify what where location-wise. Is he in Maryland at yeah. this point? Okay. He's so in he's Maryland. down in Maryland, which... For anybody who's not from this region, that's uh, that's a good distance away from Connecticut. Uh, yeah, I would say to drive to Maryland is probably going to be, like, what, like five hours or so? It's about a five, five and a half hour drive. Usually. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. So um, he gets kicked out of the house and he decides that he's going to get, I don't mean to laugh, he's going to get back at this family by booby trapping their house, um, which sounds funny because there's a gallon um, oil drum above the family's door that's rigged to fall on their head when they come in the door, which is kind of home alone. Yeah. But then he spills black paint all over their carpets. Um, he stuffs fish heads in their piano, in their chimney, and in their walls. And then he's, I mean, at this point it's kind of humorous mm -hmm. and juvenile. But he takes the three family cats and he skins them. Yeah. And he leaves them around the house. I think one's on the front porch, one's on the oven, and then I repress the third. Um, but yeah. a very heinous, you know, onslaught against, like, a family's dignity and feeling of safety, I think. In March of 1988, he was arrested for speeding in Maryland, um, which, again, is um, about a five, five and a half hour drive from here. And then... In September of 1988, he was arrested for assaulting his mother on Block Island in Rhode Island. And for everyone, Connecticut and Rhode Island share a border. They're next to each other. Um, Block Island, though, is it's literally an island off of Rhode Island, though. So it's on the opposite side of Rhode Island. And for anybody that really doesn't know their geography, Rhode Island's not actually an island. It's not. It's not. It's part <laughs> but, of the mainland, yeah. But you need to take a ferry from Rhode Island to Block Island, which I guess is it a county? I don't even, I don't even know, know how that operates. Um, but like I said, his mother had this, um, you know, very fancy hotel to herself that she ran. Again, as she had been the belle of the ball in Meriden, she was also, you know, the the 
queen of her own kingdom in, in Block Island. And he got there and they got into an argument and he tried to run over with his car. So we know where he was in March of 88 in Maryland, and we know he was in Block Island in September of 88, and Connecticut is right smack dab in the middle. So yeah. I think finding out and being able to put a definite date on this family's um, house being trashed helps us to figure out whether he was in Connecticut or not. About a month before we did this sit-down about Haddon Clark, Jessica reached out to Adrian Havel, the author of the book. Speaking as someone who had met Clark and done his extensive research on him and other criminals like him, he gave his perspective on why some of these seemingly unsubstantiated confessions are made. You realize that these guys get in prison like Haddon Clark mm -hmm. or their thing, and they get newspapers and they read about a killing somewhere and uh, they use that to uh, fabricate stories if it's, if it's to their uh, uh, purpose. Right, or they just want uh, their moment you know, in the sun, right? Right, for their, for, their, for their moment in the sun, exactly. And he, um, Haddon Clark's family were not without means. In other words, they had a little bit of money, yeah. and he was able to get uh, something left to him when he's in prison, he's still in prison, as far as I know, that he has enough money to buy stuff and uh, uh, subscribe to newspapers and subscribe to, you know, uh, a DC. he's not penniless. Right. And uh, even though he's uh, essentially living in uh, solitary. And with that caveat in mind, let's look now at the area in Wallingford and the potential routes that one would have to take to walk to either of these two bowling alleys. If Doreen had been walking, what possible bowling alleys could she have ended up at and how far away from the house she allegedly left from? So roughly, if you leave from Whirlwind Hill, you're going to be walking down, 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 down into the center of town. Um, Whirlwind Hill is up on a hill, um, sort of apart from Wallingford Center and, you know, main business area. There's a prep school down there and it goes all the way up this hill past the reservoir, you know, into this desolate farmland. She's going to be walking down towards the center of town, which doesn't have a bowling alley, down over the train tracks and then down to Route 5, which has two bowling alleys. So she's either going to take a right to go to T-Bowl, or she's, this is me really drawing on my 1980s memory from Wallingford. She takes a right to go to T-Bowl, or she takes a left to go to South Colony Lanes. And I think when we map quested it, it's seven miles to T-Bowl, and it's about five and a half to South Colony Lanes. Yeah, I remember one of them being seven miles. Um, I remember us even talking in the car how um, it was a long way just to drive it, too, um, let alone be walking. Well, and also, if you, if you don't know the area, too. Yeah, I think you don't know the area. Um, we're adults. We've gone over it multiple times. It's 2019. We have technology. I'm not scared of stuff like I used to be when I was 12. Um, and it was dark. And yeah. she didn't know where she was. So, yeah to walk that way seems like it would be very difficult to do. Now, just so the listeners know, Sarah and I had planned on walking it ourselves and tracking it 
and trying to relay to you how difficult it is to make that, like I said, as adult women in the daytime, knowing where we're going with technology. Um, but the facts are coming too fast and furious, and we can't yeah, I mean, keep it, up. And I think also, too, if we had walked from where that house is to one of to where one of the bowling alleys was at the time, um, that would have taken a long time to get there. Yes. that I mean, that alone... I, I mean, I don't know how long it would have taken, but, I mean, it would have been longer than one episode. And I think, too, because I, I drove out there yesterday to just, again, look around and see what was out there. Um, it's not safe to walk on those roads. Not at all. Um, no. I was on, you know, these daredevil curves, and that was just walking up Whirlwind Hill Road. Mm -hmm. um, it's steep. There's no sidewalks. You know, there's trucks rattling by. It's farmland, so people are going fast without necessarily looking where they're going. And, um, you know, I think it would have been fun to walk and very informative to walk, but I don't think it would have been safe necessarily for us to walk. Yeah, there's no sidewalk. And there's. I said in one of my recordings when I drove up there, I can't even really pull over because there's no shoulder to even pull over onto. Do you want to help me solve this case? If so, you can by becoming a monthly contributor to Faded Out on Patreon. You can choose any amount you like, and you will find that there are different tiers for rewards that you can get back based on how much you decide to give. You can follow my weekly blog that I put out every Monday after a new episode goes out. You can also find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and, as we go along, other documents in the case. So please help us in our journey to find out what happened to Doreen Vincent by going to patreon.com slash faded out podcast. Thank you. I mentioned at the beginning that earlier that week, Jessica, myself, and my executive producer, Joe Aguirre, drove through those roads, mapping out the routes. Here's the sound from that ride. And we're assuming that she walks straight the entire time. <clears throat> well, what else would you do? You're not going up and down streets. You're just following the trail, right? Well, what, the trail to what, though? To right? just walking. She'd have to have gone up the street, not down the street. So up the hill down South Brantford where I, where I spun around at that red barn. Uh -huh. You go down South Brantford Lane, that'll also run you out to Route 5. That takes you out by the bowling alley. Okay. So, we're running parallel right now to Route 5. I mean, look look at all the, the, the roads and whatnot up oh, in yeah. here. I mean, that is an enormous walk. There's Cook Road. And we're right back at Whirlwind. So she would have came down Cook Road and then gone down that path that I just took you yeah, out to come all the way not. out at South Colony. No. So you could rule that out. Well, plus I also don't think she came out that front door and took a hard left. I think she went out the front door and hit. I mean, you go right down Whirlwind that way. She wouldn't have, like, gone out and then walked back across the front of his workshop either. You just go out the door, runaways do not, like, leave the door standing wide open. Right, you're sneaking out. You're sneaking. 
making out. Jessica had also spoken with a man named Ed Tarney, who was the lead investigator at the time that Clark made his claims of killing women and girls up and down the eastern seaboard. As we to... brought him up here. Okay. You were with him when he took the trip up? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think there were... One thing about him, he wasn't, he wasn't the type of person that just went around abducted strangers. There was usually almost 99% of the time there was some kind of connection. Yeah, I uh, we recorded part of the podcast last night, and that was one of the things that we discussed, that, um, you know, Laura Hodling was, you know, a crime of... Um, of connection, um, and Michelle Dor was a crime of connection, and I don't know of any other specific murders, but you know his claim on this is that he kidnapped this little girl Doreen from a bowling alley that he ran into her at, and that didn't make sense to us either. When did he say that? I don't know when he uh, said how, it. How did that come to light? Because I don't really remember it. That's just what his claim. I was the one. That, I was the primary investigator on that, and I, I, I'm the one that said all this time with him. Yeah. And I, I do remember there was something in Connecticut, because I know when we came up there, we housed him in the, pen, the, the uh, penitentiary there in Connecticut. And we went out the next day with some state police guys. The murder they were looking at, I don't really remember the name. Uh, her name was Doreen Vincent. No, it doesn't ring a bell. Do you remember, um, <clears throat> they would have taken him up to a place called Castle Craig? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That's where he said he buried her. Well, he said a lot of things. Adrian Havel also had further insight. After he took them up on the wild goose chase on, uh, on Cape Cod, where they did not find um, any bodies, they did find some... Um, uh, artifacts of jewelry that he had uh, uh, buried uh, from other women, but every time they would go to a uh, uh, a place where he where he, where he said that he killed some in the area, a lot of times you know it had been so long they had built a, a housing project or a, or a, a shopping center over it, and they 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 just weren't going to drill through the blacktop to find something. And after after he did that, and then he said he wanted to go to Meriden, uh, Connecticut, and all that, the FBI began to suspect that he was just telling them that and making up stories because he wanted to get out of prison. He wanted a field trip, to tell you the truth. Of course, I'm sure you're aware that uh, you know the uh, the uh, person who killed that little 12 year old girl is. Uh, statistically, it's an 85 to 90 percent chance it was somebody in her family or somebody she knew. So again, you have to put yourself into the mindset and into the shoes of a 12-year-old girl who would likely be scared, likely be upset, likely be angry walking through this undeveloped rural area with its steep hill and its winding roads. And it's an area that she's not familiar with as she's only lived there for 10 days. And it's between 8 and 9 p.m., so the sun is setting, 8.27 p.m. to be exact. That's the time of sunset in Wallingford, Connecticut, on June 15, 1988, according to Google. So in all that walking to get to either of the bowling alleys, by the time she's got there, it would be pitch black outside. 
So if we place Haddon Clark into Doreen's disappearance, that would then mean that Doreen walked out of the house on Whirlwind Hill Road as the sun was setting, walked either up or down a very steep hill where there was no sidewalk and no shoulder to walk on, followed the road for somewhere between five to seven miles, meaning that ultimately it would have been completely dark. Upon safely reaching the center of town, which would be a better lit area, she would go past the police station, past town hall, past the little businesses that were there at the time. She has either 50 or $70 on her, but she does not stop and make a phone call to her mother, to a friend, anybody. She then finds a bowling alley, chooses that location to go inside, still does not make a phone call. And at that location, at that time, is Haddon Clark, who then picks her up and kills her. In all that distance between the house and the bowling alleys, no witness has ever come forward to say they saw a girl walking by herself in the dark on one of these roads. And in the center of town, where it would be more brightly lit, no witness has ever come forward to say they saw a girl fitting Doreen's description walking through. The same goes for the bowling alleys. No witness has ever come forward to say that they saw a girl who could have been Doreen. So while at first glance Haddon Clark may seem like a likely suspect, when you dissect the details of the Haddon Clark timeline and compare it side by side to the timeline of events of the night that Doreen disappeared, it's not impossible that they could have had that one chance encounter on that June evening at a bowling alley, but what is the likelihood when you take into account that Clark may have made up that claim entirely for the purposes of getting a field trip out of prison in Maryland? So while not impossible, it's probably not the most likely scenario. At the end of December, we made contact with Doreen's family members for the first time. And on January 9th, 2019, I, along with Jessica, Joe Aguirre, and my other producer, Jason Panette, who, if you listen to season one, you might remember his interview of me in the season finale, drove to Waterbury to meet Doreen's mother, whose married name is now Donna Lee. This was the night we met Doreen's younger sister, Stephanie, and her two aunts, Carol and Debbie. Joe drove. I sat in the passenger seat. Jessica and Jason were in the back. I was very nervous as we all rode over there, and this feeling only increased as we got closer and closer to the house. Joe pulled up to the curb in front of Donna's house and parked in the street, and just as we got out of the car, the family immediately came out and met us outside and led us all right into the kitchen. It's all public record, anything you ask for, unless the case is sealed or closed. It's still open, I think. That's what they said to me anyway. I'm actually from there originally, just so you know. I lived in Wallingford for a long time myself, not far from Whirlwind. Right. And I had never heard of this case until she brought it to me. Wow, really? Yes. Well, how old are you? I have friends who, I'm 43. Three months older than she Three months older than she is. I had friends who were... They, most wow. of my best friends are from Wallingford, and they were all were all born in '75. Yeah, wow. and none of them knew the story either. It was a welcome sight for all of us to have this much open dialogue before even releasing the first episode of this season. So as we all got more comfortable with each other, before even beginning the actual interviews, Donna and her sisters started to think back on the day that they arrived at the house on Whirlwind Hill to find Doreen's father, Mark, and to realize that Doreen wasn't there. Me and 
Jeez, was it you? Yeah. yeah, when we went there and, and when I was on that Saturday, it was yeah, the we went Saturday. to pick her up like yeah, usual. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, Saturday went there and he said, oh, oh you, you know, she took off. She she went to Where your she house. Why? Yeah, so he's acting like she took off and came to my house. You know, and, uh, and this is after three days, and he never even you know called the police or called me. Normally, he's a, a maniac because he was. Like he was obsessed with her. I realize that now, but then you think, ah, oh, he's a good father or what? He has stupidity, you know. When and you're dumb in your twenties. But anyways, um, when we pulled up, to, when we pulled up to the house, I said, hey, you know, we gotta call the police because he's just outside with the lawnmower. Was he with the lawnmower or sunning? He was sunning himself. He laying was in the sun. laying in the sun. And this is well, three days after. He had never laid and, in the sun. And nothing has been, you know, said to anybody yet. So we get in the house and I said, well, you know, did you call the police? And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm calling the police. And he said, yeah, well, go ahead or whatever. So anyways, I called the police and I said, you know, do you mind if we go up to her room? And that's when we found the jean jacket and the notepad spread on the bed. She had no bed Some things had, it's hard to remember. I remember that. Some we things I remember like it was yesterday. Other things like but I, the window. There was a was ladder crap. by her window, which ladder. Yeah. That's right. Yep. There was a ladder by so her, window, her window. Outside yes. her window. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Which was really bizarre. The window was cracked. The window was cracked. Did you catch something in there? Donna saw Doreen's denim jacket that she allegedly left with, as reported in the initial newspaper reports. The misinformation of what Doreen took with her on the night that she left will be discussed in the next episode. To effectively tell you the story of the night Doreen Vincent vanished, I have found the way to do it is to first go forward, but then to go back in the timeline to put items into context. So in my next episode, I will share with you our interviews from the rest of that night that my team and I met Donna and the rest of the family. The first-hand accounts may help to start paint a more clear picture of Doreen's early life growing up, how she ended up living in Wallingford with her father and her stepmother Sharon, and under what circumstances would she have left the house that night just as the sun was setting. Until then, please reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. You can also request to join the closed group called Followers of Faded Out. We are also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. You can also email us directly at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. To follow my weekly blog and to see behind-the-scenes photos, please become a patron of Faded Out at patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Thank you for joining me for episode three of season two. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguire. Produced by Joe Aguire and Jason Panette of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.